This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back on Monday. We want to drill down on the third wave of COVID-19 today. Where are we at here in Ontario, especially in the COVID hotspots? Is it going to get worse before it gets better? Joining us to provide some answers, epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Tim, thanks for joining us again. It's my pleasure, Jane. What have we learned? Or, and, and I guess we can start out by saying we have learned that the rolling seven-day average of COVID cases has surpassed 4,000 for the first time in the pandemic. What do you make of this? Well, I'm looking right now at the, uh, at the profile, the first, the second, and the third wave in this country. And right now, the the angle, the slope of the increase now is very, very close to the peak of the second wave. And in fact, it's heading straight upwards. There's no showing no signs of, of leveling off. In other words, my prediction is that we're going to see the third wave exceed the maximum height of, uh, of the of the second wave. In other words, it's, it's as you said at the top, it's going to get worse before it gets before it gets better. Uh, and this is largely due to the uh, to the circulating new variants. It's almost as if we had a, a, a another epidemic within the pandemic. It's almost a different organism the way it's behaving. In fact, I've got also here on the screen the um, the ages. If you remember back a year ago, we were looking at the old timers in long term care, and that was where the focus was. Right now, as of uh, last week. The predominant, the highest uh, uh, incidence of, of cases is in the 20 to 39 age group. That's the highest uh, group of people uh, reporting ill. We will be discussing that part of the third wave in the second half of, of the show, Tim, because um, even though that is the case, we still have the majority of deaths represented by those who are 60 and over, even though they only make up 15 percent of the new variant cases. Absolutely. Absolutely. Once you switch to who's dying from it, uh, still the the, the predominant risk of death if you are an older person ranges from 12 to 15 to 18 to even 20 percent it depends on where you are and on the scale of things so yes agreed but now we've also seen for example last week published by in lancet a well-respected uh, journal is that something like 34 percent of people who suffer from the virus and then recover from it have some form of neurological or, or psychiatric uh, problem lingering on six months later this is this is a, we would never have predicted this from a respiratory virus you know a, a neurological problems like this wow yeah so it's it's changing all the time and the repercussions are changing just to go back to that graph of the third wave so if we could visualize the wave where are we on the the wave? Are we, you say we're still rising to the crest? In fact, we could be rising to the crest for some time. Uh, yeah, but remember all as we've said before in the program, uh, all the data we get are a bit out of date. But certainly the the the, the official counts, which are, we know official counts are only about forty forty five percent of the actual infections going on, because the majority are. Are silent, you know, they're asymptomatic. But just looking at the at the official counts, um, we would hope to see by now. Uh, what are we into about the second wave, uh, second week of a, of a kind of a lockdown? Now mm-hmm. is begin to see the the curve beginning to flatten off, beginning to form into a plateau, and that's not happening so far. That seven day moving average is just shooting straight up like a rocket, and so it, it'll keep on going up for a while, even if all the stops are pulled out and we really clamp down, which we really haven't done. I mean, we've got to be looking at this and say, could we have done a much better job? And the answer is yes, we could have done. If we look around at the places who really have 
undergone a lockdown, and, and a real lockdown, not a, a half-hearted sort of thing where you can still go and buy beer and you can still wander along into the mall. That's not a lockdown, for goodness sake. What they did in Melbourne was a real lockdown. I mean, everybody was off the streets by 8 o'clock. On, if you weren't, you're in jail. I mean, this is severe stuff. Uh, Portugal, for example, one of the poorest countries in Europe, has got one of the best records so far. Why? Because they didn't have sort of boneheaded uh, people wandering the streets with placards and having mask burning celebrations and shouting, no one's going to tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. That doesn't exist in a country like that. They, uh, they followed the evidence, followed the science, and they've kept the numbers so low. It's amazing. Iceland is the same. Taiwan, of course, have never even had the first wave. They haven't had the first wave. They've had about 1,000 people return back to the country from overseas, and they've had, I think, 11, 11 deaths so far since the beginning. This is what, this is what you can do if you, if you follow the advice and you don't you know, take, take risks. Well, in light of that, and joining us is epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. In light of this and uh, your comment and, and other scientists' comments that the current caseload is always reflective of two weeks ago, given the lockdown or lockdown light, stay-at-home order, whatever you want to call it, should we start seeing a decline in variant cases two weeks from the onset of the stay-at-home order? Yes, we should begin. This is what I'm, I'm hoping for. I'm watching for the seven. Don't ever look at the single-day averages because this thing goes up and down and up and down. We know that the, it peaks once a week and goes down once a week. But the seven-day average is the right way to look at it, so you're, you're right on there. Yes, I'm, I'm watching for the, for the downturn, and we haven't seen that yet. Remember that the cases reported are about one, one and a half weeks after the infection took place, and the hospitalizations are about three weeks after the infection took place, and the death is anywhere up to about five weeks after the infection took place. So it's all behind the scenes. What we can be doing is, and we should have been doing this back since uh, July almost, uh, and most EPI people have been saying this all the way through, why keep 37 to 40 million uh, rapid tests in warehouses in the various provinces, and hardly any, a very small percentage, have been rolled out to be used. Rapid tests aren't going to be used as diagnosis, but they're going to be used for population screening. We want to know where the virus is, which sector really has the virus moving around. Is it in the food packing plant or the people who put Amazon stock stuff in your boxes, you know, and, and so on? We want to find that out. And some, but these tests are just sitting there and not being used. And yet uh, the governing PCs will say that they are sending uh, tens of thousands of these out every week to different factories and congregate settings. So what is the truth there? Well, they apparently, as I heard in the last week or so, that's a little bit more have been sent out, but far more. And you see, it should have been done strategically. Right from the beginning, we've been saying if we had another by strategic sampling, I mean, we don't just sort of scatter some among the population and say, here, uh, we, we target groups, we target sectors, and we try to find out exactly where it is. For example, uh, if you remember, way in the beginning, more than a year ago, the Prime Minister was saying, now's the time to come home if you're overseas, land at the airport, don't stop off at the supermarket, uh, or you see your in-laws go straight home, lock the door, and stay there, remember? Mm-hmm. But w- nobody was talking about the taxi driver and the limousine driver who had to shuttle 20 or 30 of these families from the airport, dripping with virus, presumably, back to their home. And it was only when they began to become ill and die that the death rate among taxi drivers went way up. And, and of course, they were all living in that Brampton area around the airports, and this contributes to this real hot zone. Mm-hmm. We've sort of forgotten sometimes it's the worker that suffers more than the ordinary civilian. It was a week ago today that Dr. Lawrence Lowe, speaking of Brampton, Peel's medical officer of health, declared that the variants had won round one of the race between the variants and the vaccine. Have we seen any shift in this over the last week, over the last seven days? Not that I've seen. In fact, all the, all the indicators 
whether it's at the front end and the, the actual diagnosis of the cases in the first case, right down to the number of deaths. And the deaths are now beginning to go up. Remember, there's a lag there, but the deaths are going up as well. We're seeing that they're win- going to win the, like the second and the third wave as well, simply because of, of the fact that they transmit much more readily. And we think it's, they transmit more than we even thought that they transmitted in the first case. It could, we thought maybe 40% greater risk, and now it could be as much as twice transmission. And when you look at that, it's the same calculation as you do when you look at your mortgage on your house. You know, it's the time that really causes the cost of uh, the extra mortgage on your house. And here it's the, it's the, uh, it's the doubling time of this thing that's really going to bring around the, uh, the, the enormous incidents. That's what's causing it. I'd love to see that begin to curve down, but we just haven't seen that yet. Another number, of course, we're watching is uh, the number of patients with COVID in intensive care units in Ontario hospitals. As of today, it's 642. Can you put that in perspective for us? Oh, yeah. This right from the very beginning when we were, do you remember the old phrase, flattening the curve? Do you remember we were all talking about that back in March and April last year? Well, that was the that was the sort of if we don't do it that's what we're going to run into we're going to run into overwhelming the the hospitals the hospitals will be so filled up they're going to call, shut the door and call to the letterbox they're going to say go away we're filled up and of course this is all a little comedy relief at the time but in fact we're hitting right that right now realize that when a hospital is loaded up to the gills with with uh, people who are turning blue on the on on ventilators and they're using up all of the uh, ICUs and if you go in there with a a, a burst appendix or a a broken leg or an accident or something, it's going to be difficult for you to get the treatment, the prompt treatment that you want. I mean, they're going to try their very darndest, even if they treat you in the corridor somewhere. But you can see how the the ripple effect of having hospitals that are so swamped with people on their last legs, essentially, hopefully being kept alive and ventilators and so on, uh, that's going to have a ripple effect with other effects coming out. We've even seen the cancelling of surgeries that are not absolutely urgent now. That means cancer surgeries and, uh, and things like that. We, we hope we would never get to this position, but we're in it now. And what's interesting is that... Um the government is promising some 300 new beds by the end of the week, ICU beds. But then you have doctors in the ICU saying, that's great, but we don't have the staff to staff these extra beds. Exactly, exactly. Yep. The beds are fine there and the equipment's fine. But if you, at the moment, one, one full-time nurse attendant uh, all the time on one patient, this is what it needs. And, and we're having to look at the scene where she, he or she may have to look after two or three patients at a time. And that means over 24 hours too. So this is an untenable situation. And when, when you, we begin to talk, and talk about uh, uh, taking over uh, wards of children's hospitals or shipping patients uh, without any, uh, uh, you know, in, in, uh, approval or agreement or any signature, shipping them off to other hospitals, even in other provinces if necessary, fly them out there. This is, this is you can imagine, this is a, 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 a situation we would hope we would never have been in, and yet we are in it. Before I let you go, uh, let's talk about the vaccines, the rollout. What, in your opinion, is going well? What is failing? Well, they started off very well, if you remember. I mean, all of the results came back from the phase three trials, better than anybody would have predicted. And that has stayed with us as we as we slide from the phase three trials into the larger real world data. I mean, the, the vaccine's coming out that the phase three trial has sort of ended, but the, the data stream carries on, and we're beginning to look and see that these things are working better again in the real world than we would have thought. But now, of course, we have to be very careful when we, we see any kind of a suspicion, any kind of a hint of anything. Uh, obviously, we want to know that, and the public wants to know that, so that should there be a very rare incident, this particular blood clotting situation, as your physicians will, will tell you, is, is extremely rare, and it, in fact, it's rare among these people here as well. In fact, one of the reasons you get the same phenomenon is actually being infected with a virus. So, so you're seeing the same thing happen both sides. But we cannot ignore it. We can't rule it out. This is the problem. It's such a, a the last figures I saw calculated that just around one per six hundred thousand 
um, on that. Whether that's changed or not in the last two days, I don't know. But it is extremely rare. But we need to keep a finger on the pulse and find out what's going on. And meanwhile, uh, eliminating the particular age and gender groups that seem to be affected by that. It may not be anything, but just to be on the safe side, we'll eliminate the females under, I think, what it is, uh, under 50, I think, is the age group last recommended. And, but the rest carry on. The risk is, is, of, of infection in the moment in the community is far, far, far greater than the risk of any, uh, any problems with the vaccine. So the, uh, the sense is, get the vaccine as soon as possible. We are currently number 55 in the world, 55th rank in the world in terms of number of people, that's per million, vaccinations per million people. 55 in the world, we should be in the top 10. And the reason for that is we started poorly, we were on the wrong foot, we were asleep at the, at the, at the starter's gun because we didn't produce our own vaccine. So we really have to run hard, hard to catch up and protect our people. Dr. Tim Sly, always a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you, Jane. Stay safe. Bye-bye. You too. Epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. It's Jane Brown for Libby Snymer. She's back on Monday. You're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And joining us now is family physician and the founder of Prime Health Clinical Research, regular contributor to Fight Back, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. Hi, Dr. Iris. Well, hello. How are you doing, Jane? I'm fine. Always great to chat with you. And since we last talked, I did get my AstraZeneca shot. Uh, it's been 10 days. Feel great. Warm congratulations. <laughs> Thank That's you. That's what I'm telling everybody getting vaccinated. I'm excited. It is fantastic. It is really exciting. Um, and we want to talk with you more about the vaccine and the and what kind of protection it offers against COVID-19. And it's a perfect time for you to call in if you have a question for Dr. Iris about uh, the process around your particular vaccination. 416-360-0740, toll free, one 866 740-4740. Let's uh, review, since most people who've had the vaccine have only had one dose, let's review the efficacy against the virus after a single dose. Absolutely. Consider that Canada has mainly three vaccines right now. So we've got Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca. So the news is really very good on Pfizer and Moderna. The studies are showing that immunity after getting the vaccine lasts at least six months. And what's so exciting about it is what what the scientists are looking at is after someone gets the vaccine, they measure specific antibodies that fight the virus. And those antibodies are present in high numbers after getting the Pfizer vaccine and Moderna when they're measured at the six-month point. Generally speaking, when you see a strong antibody response like that, that's an indication of long-term immunity. Now, ultimately, can you know for sure? No, you have to continue measuring it to be 100% to know how long it will actually last. So that's the antibody response. And then, on the other hand, you have the real-world data. What is it showing in terms of the number of cases And what we see is a significant decline in case counts as well. Of course, some of the best data we have is coming out of Israel, but it's super exciting to see those numbers plummeting. Now, let's talk about, is it useful against every single variant? Because, of course, it's concerning that British Columbia, at the latest count, sees a huge surge of that B. P1, sorry, the Brazilian variant, the right. P1 variant. Right. And we don't know its efficacy against that. It probably does lend a little bit of efficacy, at least some, but it's not nearly as effective as it is against the original variant and the B117 variant. So what does Those that mean, Dr. Out. What does that mean? Does that mean that there needs to be a separate vaccine for the P1 variant and other variants still to evolve? Absolutely. And Pfizer and Moderna are hard on that. Same with AstraZeneca. Virtually all of the vaccine makers are looking at creating booster shots. The golden goose here is to have a booster shot that would be a universal booster shot against all future Ah, variants. However, now, right now, they're working on specific 
booster shots against the specific variants, against P1, against that B1351 first identified in South Africa. Yeah. Okay, so let's, uh, I'm getting a lot of calls. We've been getting a lot of calls on Fight Back from people concerned about the four-month wait for the second shot in Canada. Is that a concern? This should not be a one-size-fits-all. And the answer is yes, it is a concern. And what I'm trying to do is advocate for individual patients. Those who are over 75 years of age, it is not appropriate to wait because of that depressing thing called immunosenescence. As we age, in fact, our immune system is less robust. It is less robust in its response to the vaccines as well. And there is good data supporting that, no, it is not appropriate to wait a full four months for those individuals who are 75 or above, nor is it an appropriate response to wait for individuals with severe chronic conditions involving immunosuppression. You know, so I, that's, a, that's a conversation to have with your family doctor, with your oncologist, potentially. But, it, but what we can do is write notes saying, in individual specific situations, please provide the second dose earlier. Because the default right now is everyone's just getting it at four months. Mm-hmm. No, I do not believe that is appropriate. And I think the literature, the scientific literature supports advocacy work here to say that we have to try to get those doses into arms for the individuals who are at highest risk first. Dr. Iris, we have a lot of people who want to ask you a question. So on that note, with uh, the four-month window, if you if you have, if you are 75 or older, or you have the conditions you were speaking about, how do you go about advocating for yourself to make sure you get your second dose sooner? As I mentioned, speak to your family doctor okay. to see if you can get a note, because I found that writing those notes has been effective and helpful. Now, what, if, what about those individuals who may not have a family doctor? Asking the specialist who's looking after your care may be adequate. I don't think it has to be a family doctor. It could be any doctor. That's helpful. Also, but then you take that note. What do you do with that note? You, you take it to those individuals. So what I would do, because there's a phone line. You can't do this online, unfortunately. I wish there were a way online, but the online is, like, very strict. But when you're talking to the phone line number, you can tell them, my family doctor wants me to get that vaccine sooner, that second dose. Okay. And that's all we can do. Okay. If the answer is a, a strong no, well, at least we will have tried. Okay. Well, I'm glad you've told us that because that is a common question here on Fight Back. We're with Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family physician, founder of Prime Health Clinical Research. Dr. Iris will go to the phones. Rudy in Toronto. Hi, well, you're up first. Hello. Go ahead. Hi. I'm, uh, I'm 74 and I got my dose about two weeks ago and... Uh, Maybe you've uh, you've partly answered my question, uh, Doctor, because I was wondering how effective that that uh, uh, Pfizer vaccine that I got would be against these these new variants that, that exist now. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful question. Pfizer is very effective against B one one seven. There's no question. There is partial effectiveness against the other variants. So it's kind of cool. You get you get vaccinated against one. And it will help you against the variants. But the question is, will it prevent death and will it prevent hospitalization to the same degree? The early research suggests that it may not. And that's why the vaccine makers are working so hard. So, yes, you'll have some benefit, but it's not going to be nearly the benefit that it gives against the B117, which by far is the most common variant we now have, and the original strain. So you've got, you're covered for those, but, you know, it's kind of still up in the air how much effectiveness those vaccines will prove to be against that B1351 strain first identified in South Africa and the P1 strain identified in Brazil. It's concerning because we are seeing signals out, especially out west in Alberta and British Columbia, notably. Okay, Rudy. Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks for calling. Let's go to Pat in Toronto. Pat, go ahead. I'm a little bit concerned when... People who say they have an MD and they're not not, not an epidemiologist or however you pronounce the word, we're trying to do the best for everybody. I'm over 75. Yes, I would like to have my second shot, but I would rather my second shot wait until the younger people have been covered off. 
I've got a shorter period of life to live than somebody who's age 30. And we should listen to the experts. And I'm sorry, the doctor is not an expert. Yes, she has basic training, but she doesn't have a PhD. She's not a specialist. So why does everybody have to start making their own conclusions on this. Well, I asked Dr. Iris uh, based on her expertise, and I will let you uh, reply to that comment, Dr. Iris. Pat, thanks so much for taking the time to phone. I do appreciate that. And you're right. I'm not an epidemiologist, and I am not a public health expert. I am a general practitioner with a history of vaccine research, specifically. I've been doing that for 20 years. But the best we can do is advocate for those who are most at risk of dying from the disease. And, you know, if you look at where that burden is falling, it is still falling even with the variants in the older people. And that's just the fact. So at the age of 70, well, you said you're over 75, but you would be in that category. So if I were your family doctor, I, too, would be advocating for you as well because I'm concerned. That's where the deaths are happening. So why vaccinate that group with the second dose? Because we know that their their immunity wanes after two months. And I understand the importance of getting the second doses and into, into individuals. But I'm not suggesting everybody get that second dose soon, but rather those who are at the highest risk of dying right. from the disease. Right. Let's and incidentally, that was agreed upon by Dr. Isaac Bogosh, who is a specialist. That's exactly how he himself feels about this. And Dr. Iris, I will bring that up as well in the second half with Dr. Ken Bowman, who is a bioethicist. He may have an opinion on that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's go to Rachel in Brampton. Hi, Rachel. Go ahead. Hi, how are you? I love your show, by the way. Thank you. And uh, when I'm asking, I have a question to the doctor. Yes, please. I um, I did get my first dose, the Moderna, uh, last Sunday. But I am uh, I have rheumatoid arthritis autoimmune disease, and I I don't know I heard, I read somewhere that uh, it's, uh, the vaccine is not um, as, as effective as I guess somebody who doesn't have autoimmune disease is that true or what's the doctor opinion about that? You know that's not a one size fits all question, Rachel. I appreciate it, but the thing about it is rheumatoid arthritis is a highly variable disease. So the vast majority of people who have it actually have mild disease. And then you have groups that have severe disease that require medications that further immunosuppress. So it's not just that it's an autoimmune disease, but they also are taking drugs that immunosuppress them further. So this is an individual question that you should take to your rheumatologist. You should base that decision on what your blood counts look like. Yeah, what my doctor, uh, my rheumatologist said, you take the vaccine, it doesn't matter. It is whatever vaccine they gave you, take it. He said, Absolutely. I, am I completely agree. Matter. Because the fact of the matter is, you're at higher yeah. risk because of your age and because of the autoimmune condition, because you're on immunosuppressants. The, the, yeah. Absolutely, the message is you yeah. have to get vaccinated. You should get both doses and ideally within the two to three months, not the four. But yeah, that said, four, you know, is it less of an immune response? Yes, it is, but it's the best we can do. Okay, Rachel, okay. I got to let you go. I Thanks for calling. Thank Let's go to, we'll take one more, Dr. Iris. I'll, I'll, I'll push the segment a little bit longer, and I appreciate your extra time. Here's Daryl in Toronto. Go ahead, Daryl. Hi, uh, I just wanted to, I was wondering, I got my Pfizer shot yesterday, first one, and how long does it take? Uh, till it kind of kicks in and you're getting some some kind of immunity out of it. Good question. Thank you for asking, Daryl. Two weeks, you'll be at 80%. Two weeks okay. later. And, okay. and essentially, after, after people are given the dose, you won't die from the disease. You know, it's quite incredible. The data is that, and it, like, it's impressive. It's incredibly impressive. This is, for now, still a vaccine-preventable disease. Now, what gives me pause to just, to just really be proud of that is that, you know, these new variants, how much of a change will that have? And a lot of the restrictions you're seeing are because these variants are tremendously concerning, especially we see the P1 variant. And here in Ontario, you know, we're up to 176 cases. Well, that doesn't sound like a lot, but I'll share with you, that's kind of where we were four to five weeks ago with the B117 variant. You know, these variants can rapidly take over. So that's the problem. 
You know, we don't know their efficacy with certainty against the two new variants, although you are protected against the original variant and the B117. So congratulations on getting it, and just take that first shot wherever you can get it. That's my advice. Well, uh, where we are right now in the third wave, uh, Dr. Iris, and obviously we've spoken with you many times in the past, and we will again many times in the future. Uh, Final thoughts for today. Uh, I would suggest this. The vaccinations and the natural disease both give immunity to COVID-19. The problem with relying on natural disease, and I've actually had patients say that. Why should I get it? 40% of adults do not have any symptoms when they get the natural disease. The problem with natural disease is if you're asymptomatic, the likelihood is you will not have lasting immunity. So what we know from natural disease is that people who are sicker, those who are hospitalized, actually have the best immunity. But the very best immunity comes from vaccination. That's a surefire bet. So don't rely on getting the disease naturally. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. Many thanks, Jane. It's always a pleasure. We will speak again. Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research. Coming up next on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, why the third wave of the virus is still most cruel to older people. That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns from her time off on Monday. We learned yesterday from leading geriatrician Dr. Samir Sinha that people over 60 are still most at risk of dying after contracting COVID-19 in the third wave, as they were in the second and first waves. So while people under 30 represent 60% of the current cases, that's been since March 1st, People over 60 only represent 15% of the cases, but 90% of the related deaths. We want to know why this is happening and why there are still people over 60 who have not received the first dose of their COVID vaccine. Joining us to discuss, Dr. Sinha himself, Director of Geriatrics at Mount Sinai and the University Health Network Hospitals in Toronto, along with Dr. Carrie Bowman, Assistant Professor of Family and Community Medicine at the Temerity Faculty of Medicine Expertise. Hello to you both. Hello. Dr. Sinha, tell us more about these disturbing and yet enlightening stats. What's disturbing is is the fact of the matter is that we know that older adults have represented 96% of our deaths from COVID-19 thus far in the pandemic. And just uh, during the month of March alone, they still represent 90% of our deaths, um, yet only 15% of our cases. So while, you know, while it's you know, it is correct that there's a growing number of cases amongst younger people. The truth of the matter is that it's still older adults who are the most likely ones to end up in hospital um, and to end up dying. And so while there was a lot of focus during the past month about getting older people vaccinated, we know that while 90% of Canadians say, older Canadians say they want to get vaccinated, we haven't nearly hit any of those targets in Ontario um, and especially in the city of Toronto. So we're actually seeing that we're not actually matching, you know, our supply of vaccines for this population with the actual demand that exists. And that's actually costing lives. We have to do so much better. Is there a demand from the over 60s to get the vaccine and yet they're not able to get the vaccine? Because we'll go through the percentages here in a moment. But what is the dynamic? What's happening? Well, the dynamic that we have right now is there's just a simple, there's a lot of access to care barriers. Uh, You know, usually when older people are getting their vaccinations, let's take, for example, the influenza vaccination, for example, people can usually get that easily through their primary care provider who they can also ask questions, who they trust, who they have a relationship, who knows their health well, or they can get it through a local pharmacy. But right now, the main vehicle that people have to get a vaccine is for the first time going on a website that's only available in English or French, getting on a phone line. And many people don't even appreciate that 
because it hasn't been well advertised that the phone line's available in over 200 languages of choice, for example. But then even if you can book or you have someone who can help you book, if you have internet access, et cetera, then, then the barrier is like, well, how do I get down to this clinic, for example? I can't afford a, a major taxi fare or whatever the case is. So there are a lot of these issues that really weren't anticipated um, and focused around. And all of these little things, one by one by one, create barriers so that it's not that people don't want to get vaccinated. Mm. When we've done national polls, we have 90% of people, believe it or not, 75 and older, saying, I want a vaccine. Um, but I keep hearing every day about barriers that people are facing or families are facing just trying to get their loved one a vaccine appointment. Um, and I think this is where we're seeing a major gap. And this is a gap that sadly is, is going to be deadly. Dr. Bowman, I'd like to get your comment on that as well in terms of the barriers that some people, and I guess this would be not necessarily in the 60 to 70 age range, but as people get older, these barriers, uh, how real do you see these challenges? They're very real. I I agree with Samir uh, completely. You know, I'm I'm in daily touch or almost daily touch with a lot of uh, uh, you know, senior citizens and agencies I'm working with, and and that is exactly right. Um, you know, there are obstacles that we, you know, just have not been clearly dealt with. Uh, linguistic is definitely one of them, and, and getting down there. You know, I, I've heard several people say, if only my family doctor, if only I could do it through there. So that could be something that's driving it. But, you know, generally, and I'm not just speaking about older people, I'm also beginning to wonder you know, the social scientist in me is beginning to wonder, you know, attitude and behavior are not always the same thing. And so although a lot of people, all age groups, are, are you know, saying they're very positive towards getting a vaccine, uh, part of it may be there could be some latent ambivalence in all age groups as well that's driving some of this. So it's not so much hesitancy in any particular demographic. It's an overall, if there is hesitancy, which we believe there is, it would span all age groups? I hypothesize that. I hypothesize that. And I think with the AstraZeneca, now Johnson & Johnson, uh, you know, uh, situation, uh, that could be driving some of it as well. And so what do we need? We need a lot more public support and education on these things. Um, you know, the other thing I see, Jane, is I, I see a big shift in the thinking in the media. So the thinking is, uh, you know, the older people have had their chance and now we've moved on. We're uh-huh. no longer about uh, stopping death. We're now about trying to stop the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that kind of siloed thinking is very dangerous. So you think that they've broadened uh, the uh, they've broadened the eligibility too soon to other age groups? I'm not sure if they have, but there's an attitude that it's either or, you know. Um, and and so I, but what I do find talking to a lot of people is the assumption is that you know older Canadians, let's say 65 plus. That has been dealt with. They've had their chance and they're vaccinated or they don't want to be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as Samir has said, it's really not as simple as that. I think a lot of people really don't understand, um, you know, the kind of data that you had in the intro. Uh, I think they're not even aware of it. Uh, No, you're absolutely right. And it was good to be reminded uh, that this disease, the variants are equally as tough on the elderly population, despite the vaccine rollout. I'm speaking with Dr. Samir Sinha and Dr. Kerry Bowman. Uh, Dr. Sinha, what are your thoughts on that in terms of widening the eligibility and uh, the focus now away from people 60 and over because, quote unquote, they've had their chance? Yes, and this is a huge problem because obviously when our National Advisory Committee on Immunizations kind of clearly laid out their prioritization and said that, you know, 70-plus-year-old Canadians amongst high-risk healthcare workers, Indigenous adults, these need to be our phase one priority groups to get vaccinated. You have to remember that only a few months ago in January, that population of older people weren't even included in our prioritization, right? It was only until a lot of political pressure for myself and others that finally we included this older population into the formula by February. And then it was only in March that we started offering older people in general a vaccination, for example. And you recall, you know, the haphazard rollout, multiple websites, website glitches, all these sorts of things, um, you know, that really just kind of didn't make it work well. And while we know that there's a significant, you know, when you actually look at 
um, the willingness to get vaccinated uh, that people have reported pre-pan, you know, at the very beginning of the pandemic and all throughout. Older people, by far, are much more willing to get vaccinated mm-hmm. and interested in getting vaccinated compared to younger people. Yet, you know, if we say whatever the number is, you know, if we say that right now about 90% of older people want to get vaccinated, when we're seeing that only 70% of people um, in those older age groups and then much younger in that 60 to um, 79 age group have been vaccinated, it tells us that, you know, as Kerry was just saying, that people say, oh, well, they got their chance. We were offering the vaccines. But we also have a government that's saying we don't have enough vaccines. Currently today, we have about a million doses that are sitting in freezers. And we have a lot of seniors that haven't been vaccinated. And we have a lot of essential workers that haven't been vaccinated. And we have a real problem with how we're distributing the vaccines and making sure we're getting them in the right arms. I don't think it needs to be either or. But I, I am worried that now the media has been dominated with stories about young essential workers, yes. you know, who've recently, you know, tragically died. Um, and somehow our heart goes out, you know, more to them kind of thinking about a life lost than the fact that on that given day, a dozen more people who were older adults died and many of them never had their chance to get vaccinated. I want to put this out to our Zoomer radio listeners. Uh, they always like to be part of our conversation here on Fight Back. If you are 60 plus and you have not received your first dose, we would like to know why. Is it because of barriers, inability to access uh, the clinics or your family doc is not yet giving it? Or is uh, have you decided to wait for any reason with uh, the news about the extremely rare blood clots in the AstraZeneca vaccine? Why have you not received your vaccine. Uh, We need to take a quick break, but we're back with your phone calls and both Dr. Sinha and Dr. Bowman. Numbers to call 416-360-0740. Toll free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back on Monday. I'm joined by Dr. Samir Sinha, Director of Geriatrics at Mount Sinai and the University Health Network Hospitals in Toronto, along with Dr. Kerry Bowman, Assistant Professor, Bioethicist, Professor of Family and Community Medicine at the Temerity Faculty of Medicine Expertise. And your phone calls. We want to know why, if you're over 60 and you haven't received a first dose of a vaccine, why this is the case. Let's go to Sharon in London, Middlesex. Sharon, go ahead. What's what's yes. your status with the vaccine? Well, I'm in my 70s, and I have not been able to get it yet. And it's very frustrating when I hear that there are all these openings in Toronto for people to get vaccines, because I go on the phone for London, Middlesex, and uh, you get to the phone, and it says, all our operators are busy. Try later. Click. And you go on the Internet, and all of the um, appointments are taken. And you go on and stay on for half the night and hope that something else will come up, and you can't get an appointment. And I even called my MPP and said, um, I talked to one of their workers there and said, this rollout is really crazy. If there are extra doses in Toronto that they can't use, why don't they give us more here? Dr. Sinha, this is what you're talking about, the barriers. Mm. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, this is insane because, you know, what we suggested, for example, right now, like Toronto actually is begging for a vaccine because somehow there's a million doses currently in our freezers right now in Ontario. But it sounds like you can't find them in London Middlesex. You can't find them in Toronto. They just canceled uh, 10,000 appointments this morning at Scarborough Health Network, for example, one of our hardest hit regions, because, again, they just don't have vaccine supply and other hospitals like UHN have had to pause their registrations because, again, they and they think they're going to have to close some of their clinics, too. So there is a, a real distribution issue that doesn't make any sense to me. But I think one thing that we did this morning, and um, we put out a call, a public call uh, to the premier, um, some colleagues and I and Councillor Matlow from Toronto, just saying what we should do for folks um, is we should just give them an opportunity to be able to just go and register. Say, I want a, va- I want a vaccine. So here's my name, here's my postal code, here's my address, and you tell me when you got that vaccine mm-hmm. ready to go. And that's exactly what I told my MPP when, or the person at the MPP's office when I called. I yeah, said, why don't you do that? 
because yeah. it is so frustrating when I hear on the radio, they've had their chance. Well, no, we haven't had our right. chance. Right. Clearly, you have not had your chance, Sharon. Um, Dr. Bowman, did you want to add to that? Yeah. No, you know, not just as it's insane. It's fundamentally wrong. It's, it's extremely unfair. Um, it's just not right that you've got people, you know, trying to move heaven and earth to get this done to protect their health, their safety, their family, and they can't do it. And then, you know, as Samira and others have said, you know, then you've got people saying, well, you know, they've had their chance. Well, they haven't. They haven't. Um, so this is someone that, you know, is able to, you know, you are able to to access that and do it yourself. And it still doesn't work. That's right. So, yeah. Big problem with the system and really unfair to people. Sharon, I thank you for your call. It's enlightening and important for us to hear stories like yours. I'm glad I was able to let you know our, my situation. Yeah, good luck. Thank good you, luck. Sharon. Thank, thank you. you. Let's go to Bruce in Guelph. Bruce, have you hey, received, James. you haven't received your first dose? Yeah, it's okay. So I, 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 my business is in Guelph and I deliver only for pharmacies. Rexall, they have that, AstraZeneca, but I really don't want that. I, I just, not because of blood, I just everything else. I live in Cambridge, so I registered in Guelph about three and a half weeks ago. I phoned the other day um, and, and talk, finally talked to him. Again, I had like that lady in London. You get on there, they put you on hold for a while, and then click the ha- hangs up. Anyways, I finally got through to somebody, and I said, look, I'm 66. I registered three and a half weeks ago, blah, blah, blah. And she said, well, okay, well, it takes about a month before we get back to you. And I said, but I'm over 66. Isn't the group being vaccinated mm-hmm. now over 60? And she kind of said, hand and hod. And she said, well... It's all about the Ontario algorithms and all this stuff. And I thought, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, cancer patients come first and this and that. And then, you know, and, and it was just so frustrating. She says, you got to wait for the code, blah, blah, blah. Then I got off the phone and I thought, in, in that pre-registration, they didn't ask me if I'm a cancer patient. I could be, but they didn't ask me. So how do they know? How do they have these algorithms going? All you do is put in your date of birth your email, your address, your phone number, and that's it, basically. But, so you, I don't know. but Bruce, you should have access. You say you don't want to get the AstraZeneca vaccine, but you yeah. should have access to that. Oh, no, I do have access. That's what I'm saying. I'm just very leery of it. I'm waiting. Like, well, I have a couple of drivers working for me. One is over 70. He got the Pfizer. One is 64, and he got the Pfizer, too. So I, but, I, again, the, just the frustration of these algorithms they're talking about, I don't get it. Because you put nothing in about your health status when you pre-register. So how do they know who's the cancer patient and who's not? Okay, let's put that to Dr. Bowman. Do you have the answer for that? I don't, but I'll tell you this. I'll state the obvious. It is not the responsibility of the average person, citizen, to to interpret algorithms. That's not their responsibility. Uh, They know who they are. They know what their age is. It's not for them to try and negotiate. You know, we, what we really need, and this has been said a few times now, and I'm just going to echo it, you know, what's, you know, what's your date of birth? What's your postal code? How can we reach you? It's now their problem, and they got to get back to you in a timely fashion. You shouldn't have to beg. No. And it sounds like you don't even get to stay on hold. It sounds like they hang up on you. That's even worse. Well, Dr. Sinha, it was just last week that uh, Premier Ford put on his, posted on his Twitter feed uh, a video of him talking about the hundreds of thousands of people. And I remember specifically the 60 to 69 with 600,000 people who still haven't received their first dose, basically putting it on the people for not having booked their vaccine. And we are clearly hearing otherwise. No, and, and this is this is the challenge, right? I think it's 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 been terribly communicated. And part of the reason why we're saying that a pre-registration system can work is because if we say, wow, there's not a lot of interest here, but there's a ton of interest over there. Okay, well let's go make sure that we have enough vaccines that we can actually mobilize around because again, supply is no longer an issue. We just received a whole bunch of more Pfizer doses just yesterday that came in. We have a million doses in the fridge right now, yet we have places around the province that are talking about having shortages. It makes no sense. And that's why we talk about if everyone back in December, for example, was told, hey, vaccines are coming. If you're interested right now, register your name. And that way we know where there's, a, you know, where there's a big demand that we can start flowing vaccine, you know, uh, more efficiently. I'll tell you, if you go to a country like Chile, okay, um, we often don't think about you know, other countries and what they're doing. But in Chile, they actually have a national calendar. So you know that if you are 
45, for example, on June 21st, you will be, that's your day to go get vaccinated. So people actually can like plan out there. So they know I'm going to go to a vaccination center as long as I, I was born in that year. That is, that is, you know, and, and they've done that by taking a look and saying, we know how many people live in Ontario. We know how many people were born in this year or that year. They actually have the health information of pretty much everybody in the province, date of birth, all that through their OHIP cards, for example. I want to talk more about this proposal tomorrow. I mean, we're running short of time. Uh, Dr. Bowman, I'll get you to respond to Lorna in Brantford, see if we can get another call in here. Lorna, what is your story? Yes, uh, I tried to go on the Internet for my brother that had uh, bladder cancer removed on January, so the end of of March in Muskoka, and uh, I got as far as putting in his um, health card, and then nothing. It just froze. So I finally phoned the 1-800 number, and they told me that uh, he could go to what they call Minden, like an hour and a half from where he lives, uh, if he wanted it, but to call back after Easter and book an appointment. So he finally did. Now he's got an appointment for the end of April. For the end of April, and your brother is 72. Yes, and he had his bladder removed in January. Dr. Bowman, that that does not fall in line with expectations that we've been given. No, it doesn't. And, you know, this large trend that's out there, and I'm not going to blame it. It's not entirely the media, but, but, you know, I I hear it all over the place that, you know, the older people have had their chance. Uh, We've done with the vulnerability thing. Now we have to stop the pandemic. And, you know, this new variant is killing younger people, not older people. That's a very simplistic uh, assessment of the reality of it. So there's lots of holes in the system, and I think it's it's very important we keep this information being fed back into the system uh, because we have got to reach out and find these people that, that are vulnerable and need all the help they can get. Dr. Sinha, we need to wrap up the segment. Uh, further to Dr. Bowman's comments, uh, going forward from here, your thoughts? I don't want anybody out there to get discouraged. Anybody there, you know, out there who's listening, who wants a vaccine, please, despite the bugs in the system, please keep trying to get vaccinated. Hopefully this feedback will be helpful to kind of improve things as we move forward. And we have to remember that right now, older people remain the most vulnerable in our province. And with these variants of concern, they're the most likely to end up in hospital and die. So if you're hesitant about getting a vaccine, remember the fastest vaccine you can get your hands on. They're all excellent vaccines and they pretty much nearly protect you for almost by 100%. Uh, from ending up in a hospital or dying. So I would not be shopping for a vaccine. I would get whatever you can uh, because they're all great, um, especially in older people. I thank you both for your time uh, from this AstraZeneca shot recipient. It was good to talk to you. (laughs) Thank Thank you, you, Samir. Nice to to talk to you again, even though we didn't talk. (laughs) (laughs) We will talk with you both again. Dr. Samir Sinha, Director of Geriatrics at Mount Sinai and the University Health Network Hospitals in Toronto, along with bioethicist Dr. Carrie Bowman, Assistant Professor of Family and Community Medicine at the Temerity Faculty of Medicine Expertise. And by the way, we can't give out to this information enough to book a vaccine. Best way on Ontario.ca slash book vaccine, Ontario.ca slash book vaccine, or the hotline number 1-888-999-6488. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.